0: Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Mulherker. I'm currently a medicine intern in Philadelphia, and I will be your host today. Welcome back. This is part two of our three-part series on anemia. In our last episode, we kind of discussed uh that the key to mastery of anemia is creating a mental diagram, some sort of schema, mind palace where you can organize all the different types of anemia and as you're answering questions about anemia, you can kind of navigate that and practice utilizing it to determine what kind of anemia a patient has. So in the last episode we discussed different types of microcytic anemia. Um, And it was a long episode, but in this episode, we're going to be discussing normocytic anemia, and I think this is actually the hardest one, and this is definitely going to be the longest episode. Um, But stick with us, and hopefully, if you pay attention, by the end of this episode, you can have a better idea of how to approach questions regarding normocytic anemia. So Remember, whenever we talk about approaching questions to anemia, we start with the labs, and you'll notice that any patient with anemia is going to have a low hemoglobin. That means that they have anemia. What value did we say that we want to look at next? That would be the MCV, or the mean corpuscular volume. So what is the MCV for normocytic anemia? Right, normal MCV is going to be about 80 to 100, now, once you know that a patient has normocytic anemia, you have to understand how normocytic anemia is subclassified. So there's kind of two classifications. Um, the first is non-hemolytic, and the second is hemolytic. So I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Non-hemolytic implies that there's no hemolysis going on, whereas hemolytic implies that there is hemolysis. And then hemolytic anemia is further subclassified into two types. Do you know what those are? So hemolytic anemia can be either intrinsic or extrinsic. And if these words are kind of starting to stir some panic, don't worry, calm down, because we're gonna go over all of it in due time. What I'd like to do here is start with the easiest type of anemia, which is non-hemolytic anemia, because there's only two diseases that you need to know within this category. And the first disease is really easy because we already went over it in the last episode. So I'll just start by asking you, uh, what type of anemia would you expect to find in a patient with some kind of chronic inflammatory condition such as rheumatoid arthritis or perhaps a neoplastic disorder? What type of anemia? If you're thinking anemia of chronic disease, that's absolutely correct. So anemia of chronic disease is interesting because it actually starts as a normocytic anemia, but it can become microcytic as it becomes um, more chronic. So as the severity of this disease increases, more iron ends up getting sequestered intracellularly and that's when it becomes a microcytic anemia. But initially, it can start off as normocytic. So it kind of falls into both categories. Now, what causes anemia of chronic disease? So, inflammatory cytokines actually cause liver to receive, release this molecule called hepcidin. And hepcidin inhibits ferroportin and ends up trapping the iron inside of the cells. So, the idea behind this, or at least how I like to reason it to myself, is that um the body thinks that it's under attack and there's some kind of pathogen within the body and so it does not want the pathogens in the body to get the iron and so we end up keeping all the iron inside the cells. So what would it, we expect to happen to the serum iron levels as a result? They're decreased because remember, um, ferroportin is inhibited and iron is trapped inside of the cells. What happens to total iron binding capacity? It's decreased as well because all the iron is bound and sequestered inside the cells. And what happens to ferritin? So ferritin is increased. And that's easy to remember because I want you to think of ferritin in the same category that you think of things like the ESR and CRP. These are acute phase reactants which automatically increase anytime there's an inflammatory process in the body. Okay? So anemia of chronic disease, the iron levels are going to be decreased the total iron binding capacity is going to be decreased, and ferritin is going to be increased. Now, what might be the second disease that falls under the category of non-hemolytic anemia? If we're not breaking down RBCs, we the reason that we probably don't have them is because we can't make them, right? Because it's non-hemolytic. So, The key for this disease is that you would see a hypocellular bone marrow. And if you did a bone marrow biopsy, it might actually show an abundance of fat cells. Do you know what the diagnosis is here? So I'm thinking of aplastic anemia. Okay. Aplastic anemia is not just an inability to make red blood cells, but really. All products of the bone marrow. So you'll not only see a low hemoglobin, you'll also see low white blood cells and low platelets. And that condition is referred to as pancytopenia. So anytime patients have pancytopenia, which means red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, everything that comes from the bone marrow is lowered, aplastic anemia should be on the differential. Now, there are several causes of aplastic anemia, um, they can be genetic. Uh, For example, do you guys know this is kind of um, out there, but patients that have pancytopenia, a triangular shaped face, short stature, cafe au lait spots, they have absent radii as well as thumb defects. This is Fanconi's anemia. So this is a very rare condition um, and it's a DNA repair defect. The defect is in non-homologous end joining. And That's why you kind of get these weird findings of short stature, cafe au lait spots, aplastic thumbs, radial defects. Um, They also have increased incidence of cancers. So Fanconi anemia is a genetic type of aplastic anemia. And what was the DNA repair defect again? It's a non-homologous end joining. Good. Um, Other causes of aplastic anemia might be infectious. So um, patients who have... um, Increased susceptibility for aplastic crisis are often patients that have things like sickle cell disease or thalassemia, but can you think of some viruses that can cause aplastic anemia? So yeah, there's parvovirus, B19, um, Epstein-Barr virus, hepatitis, all of these can lead to aplastic anemia as well. And then finally, drugs. What kind of drugs might you expect lead to aplastic anemia? Definitely chemotherapeutic drugs, so um, a lot of the alkylating agents as well as antimetabolites. Now, how would a patient with aplastic anemia present? So to answer this, think about what they can't make, right? They can't make white blood cells, so they're more susceptible to infection. They can't make platelets, and so they end up bleeding. So they'll have purpura or petechiae, um, mucosal bleeding. And then they can't make red blood cells, and how does that present? Kind of the same way that anemia presents, so they'll have like generalized fatigue. The key to diagnosis, does anybody know? You want to do a bone marrow tap, and what would the bone marrow tap show? It'd be dry, there's no blood cells, but um, what would the bone marrow biopsy show? It actually shows fatty infiltration of the bone marrow. So anytime you look at a bone marrow biopsy and it shows a bunch of adipocytes, just a bunch of fat cells everywhere, uh, think about aplastic anemia. And so good, those are the two diseases that fall under the category of non-hemolytic anemia, okay? Um, Remember, the first one was anemia of chronic disease, which starts as normocytic and then becomes microcytic. And the second non-hemolytic is not because we can't break down red blood cells, but because we can't make them. And so that is aplastic anemia. And now we come to the monster that is hemolytic anemia. And remember I mentioned earlier that hemolytic anemia is divided into two categories, which are intrinsic and extrinsic. And it took me a very long time to understand what exactly that means. So I think the easiest way to understand what intrinsic and extrinsic mean is to understand that those terms are relative to the red blood cell, okay? So, when you hear intrinsic hemolytic anemia, you should think that there is something inherently wrong with the red blood cell that leads to lysis. When you hear extrinsic hemolytic anemia, there is some external force which is present, such as an antibody, some kind of trauma, some kind of infection that is causing lysis of the red blood cell. So intrinsic and extrinsic hemolytic anemia are relative to the red blood cell, causes intrinsic to the red blood cell versus causes that are extrinsic to the blood cell. Now, this is not to be confused with intravascular versus extravascular hemolysis, okay? Because that refers to specific findings which depend on where the red blood cells get destroyed. Okay, for example, in intravascular hemolysis, you'll see increased presence of schistocytes. There'll be hemoglobinuria, there'll be urobilinogen in the urine, increased unconjugated bilirubin. There's a molecule called haptoglobin, which binds free hemoglobin in the plasma, and that actually gets depleted because it ends up binding more hemoglobin when the red blood cells get broken down. This is in contrast to extravascular hemolysis, in which the red blood cells are actually cleared in the spleen by macrophages. So in this case, there's not a whole lot of hemoglobin being released into the vessels, and so haptoglobin levels will remain normal. Okay, so I know that was confusing, but the takeaway is that the process of hemolysis can either be intravascular or extravascular. If it's intravascular, what happens to haptoglobin? It's depleted. Haptoglobin levels are lower. And if hemolysis is extravascular, such as in the spleen, what happens to haptoglobin? Levels can remain normal. But when we divide hemolytic anemia into subcategories, we are thinking intrinsic versus extrinsic not in relation to the blood vessel, but in relation to the actual red blood cell. So is the problem intrinsic to the red blood cell, or is it extrinsic and some external factor which is affecting the red blood cell? So if you can kind of wrap your head around that, then I think that's definitely a very good start. Another thing that I do want to mention here is that there's a very important pattern of lab values in all causes of Hemolytic anemia. Do you guys know what I might be thinking of? So, in hemolytic anemia, there's going to be an elevated indirect bilirubin. And why is that? Why does that make sense? So, remember that when hemolysis occurs, uh, we get a lot of hemoglobin in the blood, and that gets broken down in the liver. And uh, the liver converts the hemoglobin into Indirect or unconjugated bilirubin, and then there's a conjugation reaction in the liver, and um, it ends up being excreted from the liver as direct or conjugated bilirubin. When hemolysis occurs, it's as if there's an increased number of reactants that are going into the conjugation reaction, and then the enzymes can't really keep up, and so we end up getting an accumulation of those. Um, of that indirect unconjugated bilirubin. Now, in the lab values, they're not just going to give you that. They're not going to say that there's elevated indirect bilirubin. What are the labs going to show, though? They're definitely going to show hyperbilirubinemia, so you'll have an elevated total bilirubin. However, the direct bilirubin will most likely be normal because you're still able to make normal amounts of conjugated or direct bilirubin um, but you just have an accumulation of those reactants, and so there's increased unconjugated. So total bilirubin is going to be elevated, but direct bilirubin is going to be normal. And when do we see elevated direct bilirubin? That's more in obstructive pathologies. So when there's some um, something that's blocking the flow of contents from the liver and gallbladder um, into the GI tract, right? So that's not the case here. In hemolysis, what we actually see is indirect bilirubin. So just keep that in mind and something to be aware of when you're looking at the lab values. And now I think we can start talking through the different types of hemolytic anemias. So I'm going to start with the extrinsic hemolytic anemias, okay? Um, And remember, in extrinsic hemolytic anemia, what is the problem? There's some kind of external problem that is causing the destruction of red blood cells. And it can be a variety of things. Um, I think that I use the mnemonic AVVI. That's the order that I'm going to go over them. If it's easier for you to remember the letters, though, um, you can think VIVA, like Viva La Vida. Okay? So AVVI are the different causes that could potentially cause external destruction of the red blood cells. So the first one is A, antibodies. So for this, think autoimmune hemolytic anemia, and it can be warm or cold. Do you guys know what type of antibodies are warm antibodies? IgG antibodies are warm weather antibodies. think warm weather is great, um, and that's why IgG is the warm antibody. What type of antibodies are cold antibodies? IgM. So think cold weather is miserable, and that's why IgM are the cold antibodies. And now when do we even see warm antibodies? What's the clinical presentation? So usually this happens in more chronic conditions, um, such as lupus, leukemia, drugs that people might take, such as alpha-methyldopa. And do you remember when we see cold antibodies? These occur usually in more acute settings. So think Remember, mycoplasma pneumonia can present with cold antibodies. Um, It can happen in mono as well with uh, Epstein-Barr virus. Um, And the mnemonic is really good for this. You know, cold weather is miserable. But it also kind of makes sense if you think about it pathophysiologically. So remember that IgM antibodies, remember how they're very large and unwieldy. And so they kind of tend to get trapped in the smaller vessels Of the fingers and toes and that can kind of cause agglutination and that's why um, fingers and toes might turn blue and this happens especially in the cold weather when those small vessels of the fingers and toes happen to constrict because of the cold weather and that's when the IgM antibodies also tend to agglutinate. What is going to be the key diagnostic finding for autoimmune hemolytic anemia? So Coombs positive, okay? And the Coombs tests can get confusing, but Coombs positive basically just means that red blood cells are agglutinating. And I guess I'll take a minute here to go over the different types of Coombs tests. Do you guys remember what how the direct Coombs test works? So, we basically add anti-human globulin into a patient's blood. And if the patient's blood has the antibodies present, then we'll see agglutination. So that's a direct Coombs test. And then what's the indirect Coombs test? So, in indirect Coombs test, we add anti human globulin with somebody else's blood, some kind of donor blood, to the patient's serum and then if the patient's serum has antibody then it'll bind the donor blood and then the anti human globulin will bind that and that'll cause agglutination and that'll be a positive result so they're both kind of testing the same thing which is is there antibody that binds red blood cells in the patient's serum in the direct patient in the direct coombs test you're using the patient's own blood and in the indirect coombs test you're using donor blood. But either way, you're testing if the patient's serum has antibody present. Now, in autoimmune hemolytic anemia, what do we see on blood smear? So, we see a finding called spherocytes. The way that I think of this is that the whenever the antibody binds, it causes complement factors to come in and kind of pick off parts of the cell membrane. And then we end up getting these round cells without central pallor because of decreased surface area of the cell membrane. And whenever spherocytes are present, there's another test that becomes positive. Do you know what that is? So this is the osmotic fragility test. And we'll talk more about this when we talk about um, hereditary spherocytosis, which is one of the intrinsic hemolytic anemias. Um, But just remember that both hereditary spherocytosis as well as autoimmune hemolytic anemia both have spherocytes present. um, And it is a hemolytic anemia. So how do we tell the difference between hereditary spherocytosis, and autoimmune hemolytic anemia. So that Coombs test, which uh, tests for the presence of antibodies against red blood cells, that's only going to be positive in autoimmune hemolytic anemia, okay? That was long and tricky, but hopefully it makes sense. And remember that there were four different types of causes for, um, you know, causing external destruction of the red blood cells. And that was the first one, which is A autoimmune. The next two uh, both start with a V, and so that's where the mnemonic AVVI comes from. And so the second we're going to talk about is vessels, okay? So think about red blood cells getting damaged when they're traveling through very narrow vessels. And what situation would you see this in? When would the vessels be very, very narrowed? So think of things like hypertensive, emergency, um, TTP, or HUS, like um, hemolytic uremic syndrome, um, DIC, um, these, in all of these cases, hypertensive emergency, DIC, there's going to be very narrow vessels and that can cause damage to the red blood cells as well. And do you know what finding we would see on a smear? So we'd see something called schistocytes. What are schistocytes? Schistocytes, also known as helmet cells, are actually fragmented red blood cells, okay? And schistocytes happen when there is literal trauma, okay? Some kind of mechanical damage that just like splits the red blood cells into different pieces as if they've gone into battle. It just kind of cuts them up. Um, And so it's easy to remember that they're helmet cells, probably because they look like a helmet. Um, Think of a, you know, like a semicircle. Um, And it's it literally is as if they've gone into battle and just gotten cut up into different pieces. And so because the, um, the vessels that are breaking these cells are very, very tiny, this is known as a microangiopathic anemia. Okay, so think hypertensive emergency, TTP, HUS, and DIC, microangiopathic anemias. That's the second V. The third V stands for valves okay, so think of prosthetic or stenotic heart valves. These can also cause mechanical damage to red blood cells. However, these openings tend to be larger. So as opposed to microangiopathic anemia, what do you think damage to red blood cells caused by valves is known as? It's called macroangiopathic anemia, okay? So it's the same process. The difference is just where it's occurring. In microangiopathic anemia, it's happening in very, very tiny blood vessels. In macroangiopathic anemia, it's happening because of valves. What do you think the peripheral smear would show? It shows schistocytes as well, okay? And so we covered autoimmune, we covered vessels, we covered valves, and then the last piece of the mnemonic starts with an I. And so, what do you think the I stands for? Infection. Okay. Can you think of any infections that would destroy red blood cells? So, what comes to mind is malaria as well as babesiosis. I'm not going to go over those diseases in too much detail right now, but just know that malaria and babesiosis are both infections that can destroy the red blood cells. I think right now would be a great moment to kind of pause and review what we've talked about so far. We have covered that within normocytic anemia, there's two categories, hemolytic as well as non-hemolytic. Non-hemolytic anemias include anemia of chronic disease as well as aplastic anemia. And then hemolytic anemias can be divided into extrinsic versus intrinsic. So far, we've only talked about the extrinsic causes of anemia. And the mnemonic that I was thinking about for that is AVVI or VIVA. So think A is for autoimmune, Vs are for vessels and valves, and I is for infections. And so the last thing that we have left to talk about are the intrinsic hemolytic anemias, okay? And there are six of these that you need to know in total from the intrinsic hemolytic anemias. And so we'll go over them um, using example cases. So the first case I'd like to present is a five-year-old boy who comes in complaining of fatigue for the last several months, and he also has yellowing of his eyes. His mother and sister had similar symptoms throughout their lives as well. When you do his exam, he has pale conjunctiva, scleral icterus, diffuse jaundice, palpable splenomegaly. His labs reveal an indirect bilirubinemia, an MCV of 85 and an MCHC of 40%. Normal MCHC is about 31 to 36%. And do you guys know what the diagnosis is here? So this patient has hereditary spherocytosis. And there were many clues in that little vignette which we will talk about. But what do you guys think was the giveaway? For me, it was probably the MCHC. And now that's something that we haven't really talked about, so I'll explain. MCHC is the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration, and normal MCHC is about 31 to 36%. MCHC is a measure of the concentration of hemoglobin relative to the volume of a blood cell. Okay? And it makes sense if you understand what hereditary spherocytosis is, okay? Do you guys know the cause of hereditary spherocytosis? So in HS, there's some kind of mutation or defect in proteins of the red blood cell membrane. Um, some, of these, some examples of proteins that might be mutated include spectrin and ankerin. So mutations in these proteins lead to a decrease in the volume of the cell membrane. And so that kind of explains why the MCHC ends up being increased. There's a decreased volume within the blood cell, but the hemoglobin concentration is the same. And so MCHC ends up being increased. Do you guys know what we would see on smear? we see spherocytosis because it's called hereditary spherocytosis. Um, Normal red blood cells tend to have kind of a biconcave disc shape, Um, but what happens in HS, there's a defect in the plasma membrane, so we have less surface area, and we don't get that biconcave disc shape. Instead, what we get is circular RBCs with no central pallor, and that is a key, the no central pallor. So... It is hereditary spherocytosis, and this patient's mom and sister had it as well. Um, What do you guys think is the inheritance of this? It's autosomal dominant. And how do we diagnose hereditary spherocytosis? There's something that we can do, um, which is called the osmotic fragility test. So what happens is the cells have low surface area, and they end up bursting really easily as a result. Um, They're just osmotically fragile. Do you guys remember what other disease we talked about earlier that had a positive osmotic fragility test? That would be autoimmune hemolytic anemia. But what was the finding that we could use to differentiate autoimmune hemolytic anemia from hereditary spherocytosis? The Coombs test, remember, autoimmune hemolytic anemia is Coombs positive, but hereditary spherocytosis is not. Other than the osmotic fragility test, um, which is going to be the right answer on the test, there is another way to diagnose hereditary spherocytosis. And this is known as the acidified glycerol lysis test. Okay. So in real life, what they're going to use is eosin 5 malamide, mel- um, and they label RBCs with this molecule called E5M, and they end up doing flow cytometry. So, know um, that osmotic fragility test is used to diagnose hereditary spherocytosis, um, but it's kind of a more dated way of doing it, and what they use now is this eosin 5 malamide um, and flow, cyto- flow cytometry method. So how do we definitively treat hereditary spherocytosis? It's going to be splenectomy, okay? Because what happens is the spleen recognizes these abnormal spherocytes and degrades them, which is what causes hemolysis. And so that's why this patient had that finding of splenectomy. We can definitively treat hereditary spherocytosis simply by removing the spleen and preventing the degradation of all those um, molecules good. So that was hereditary spherocytosis. And now we'll move on to case two. So case two is going to be a 30-year-old African-American male who comes in with a two-day history of dark urine, fatigue, and abdominal pain after he started taking Bactrim. Um, That's the brand name for trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole. He started taking Bactrim for a UTI. His labs are showing indirect bilirubinemia and increased LDH. What is his diagnosis? So this is sort of the classic presentation for G6PD deficiency. Do you remember what G6PD is? So G6PD, if you think back to biochemistry, is an enzyme which is part of the pentose phosphate pathway And the function of this enzyme is to generate NADPH, which is necessary to reduce glutathione. Okay. And then glutathione, um, with the help of glutathione peroxidase, then goes on to help detoxify peroxides and free radicals. So classic G6PD deficiency presents um, with, you know, normally a patient is asymptomatic, but then... They are exposed to some kind of oxidative stress, and then they end up getting hemolytic anemia. So that's why this patient came in. He took Bactrim, and then he came in with dark urine, fatigue, abdominal pain, signs of hemolytic anemia. So what are the different stressors that can cause hemolytic anemia in these patients? There's many different types of drugs. So any kind of sulfa drug, um, we mentioned the sulfonamide Bactrim, nitrofurantoin, nitrofurantoin, Antimalarials such as primaquine, chloroquine, um, isoniazid can, can cause this kind of stress. Um, certain infections can definitely lead to oxidative stress. And then also um, fava beans. I honestly do not know what these beans are, but they show up everywhere. And these kind of beans can expose patients to oxidative stress and cause a G6PD flare. So what's the inheritance pattern of um, G6PD deficiency? It is an X-linked recessive disease. And do you guys know kind of what the traditional demographic is? A lot of times it will show up in African-American men. It can also happen in Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, and Asian men. What do we see on blood smear for these patients? So we see very unique findings called Heinz bodies and bite cells. Do you guys know what Heinz bodies are? So Heinz bodies are actually globin chains that have denatured because of the oxidative stress. And then what are bite cells? So bite cells happen because the spleen actually kind of phagocytoses the Heinz bodies. It literally takes a bite out of the RBC to remove those Denatured globin chains. And so bite cells are literally red blood cells that look like they have had a bite taken out of them to remove those denatured globin chains, which are which are the Heinz bodies. And now the last question I have for this case is: why does the patient's LDH rise? So there can be many causes, um, usually related to tissue damage. Um, But LDH can be released from red blood cells as well um, in cases of hemolytic anemia. So that's why the LDH ends up being higher. All right, let's move on now to case three. So let's say an African-American child comes in with a history of multiple hospitalizations for arm and leg pain. Today, he's coming in with painful swelling of his hands and feet. On exam, he's febrile to 101 and he has symmetric swelling of bilateral hands and feet with restricted range of motion. What is his diagnosis? So what I'm describing here is dactylitis in a patient with sickle cell disease. What's the cause of sickle cell disease? Remember, SCD is a point mutation in the beta chain of hemoglobin, there's a glutamate to valine substitution and that ends up resulting in a sickling or sickled shape of the red blood cells. So of course we're going to see anemia. What about the dactylitis? What is that? So dactylitis is actually caused by a vaso crisis. The sickle-shaped cells end up getting tracked in, trapped in the blood cells and it can be very painful for patients. Do you guys know what different triggers are? So low oxygen, um, for example, if you're in a high-altitude condition, um, as well as acidotic states can trigger this. And the vaso crisis that causes dactylitis um, doesn't just happen in your limbs. If it happens in the limbs, it's called dactylitis. But it can also happen in the spleen, in the lungs. That can cause acute chest syndrome. It can lead to stroke. It can happen in the kidney and cause papillary necrosis. So Patients with sickle cell disease will often have what is called autosplenectomy. Do you guys know what happens in autosplenectomy? Essentially, repeated infarcts of the spleen cause it to become shrunken and non-functional. And what happens when patients don't have spleens? They have increased risk of something, right? What is that? They have increased risk of infection from encapsulated organisms. So we want to, you know, vaccinate these patients against the different encapsulated organisms. And children, often children under five, will actually just get prophylactic penicillin to prevent them from getting infections from encapsulated organisms. Now, what drug can we use to treat sickle cell disease? Hydroxyurea. Good job if you remembered that. Do you know what the mechanism is? So hydroxyurea inhibits an enzyme called ribonucleotide reductase and that what that does is, is it prevents formation of deoxynucleotide diphosphates and the exact mechanism of how it helps in sickle disease is not ex- sickle cell disease is not exactly known but we do know that it somehow increases the concentration of fetal hemoglobin and that can protect against the sickling which is caused Um, by the abnormal adult hemoglobin. Now, how do we diagnose sickle cell disease? We use hemoglobin electrophoresis. And um, you'll have to kind of look up a picture of what the electrophoresis looks like, but remember the mnemonic, a fat Santa Claus. That kind of helps with the order that the different types of hemoglobin uh, show up in. Now, case four, um, it's actually not a case. I'm not even going to spend that much time on it. But this disease is very similar to sickle cell disease, except instead of um, valine, it's a glutamate to lysine mutation. Do you guys know what that is? This is a, this is called hemoglobin C disease. Okay. And now keep in mind that patients may also have Um, hemoglobin SC disease in which they have one of each mutation. So they have one glutamate to valine and one glutamate to lysine. Um, This is a milder disease versus sickle cell disease. Now, case five. Let's say a 50-year-old woman presents to the emergency department in the middle of the night with abdominal pain and dark urine. On MRI, you see splenic vein thrombosis, And her labs show indirect hemoglobinuria, elevated LDH, and decreased haptoglobin. What is her diagnosis? So this patient has what is called paroxysmal nocturnal hematuria. Do you guys know what the cause of this disease is? So patients with paroxysmal nocturnal hematuria have a mutation in certain proteins. um, So decay accelerating factor, also called CD55. membrane inhibitor of reactive lysis, also called CD59. So CD55 and CD59 are proteins which are normally found on the red blood cell membrane, and they protect against complement. Without the presence of these proteins, complement can actually attack and cause degradation, and that is why these patients get hemolysis. So this condition is also associated with thrombotic events. Um, that's why our patient has splenic vein thrombosis. And the mechanism's not exactly understood, but um, the you, kind of like the, the pathognomonic triad for paroxysmal nocturnal hematuria that you should know is a combination of hemolytic anemia, venous thrombosis, and pancytopenia. Okay, hemolytic anemia. Venous thrombosis and pancytopenia. Why do symptoms get worse at night? Why does it happen at night? Do you guys know? So, complement actually tends to get activated in acidotic states, and so that's why um, in, during the night patients tend to breathe a little more shallower um, and ends up getting a little bit more acidotic than during the day, and so that's why it happens at night. And LDH, we kind of talked about why that would be elevated earlier. Um, What about decreased haptoglobin? So remember we talked about haptoglobin being a molecule that binds hemoglobin in the plasma? So it gets depleted in intravascular hemolysis. The reason I'm going over these kind of random values like LDH, haptoglobin, is because there are just different things that they can kind of give you in the vignette or different lab values that they could give you below the vignette. And I just don't want you to get confused or overwhelmed by them. Um, Whenever you're answering these questions, I think generally it's good to just use the information you know. For example, for paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, um, you're going to get that Um, that triad of hemolytic anemia, venous thrombosis, pancytopenia, and kind of identifying those three things will be enough to answer the questions, but it's also good to be aware of other lab values that can help get you to that diagnosis. I think the key is to kind of use what you know, and then you probably know enough to make educated guesses about the things that you don't know. All right, that little advice aside, let's get to our final case, case six. So a newborn baby appears to be in distress with tachycardia, tachypnea, appears jaundiced, and also has palpable splenomegaly. The mom's blood type is A positive, And this patient is going to have increased levels of 2,3 BPG or bisphosphoglycerate. Do you guys know what the diagnosis is here? this one is pyruvate kinase deficiency. Um, Do you guys know what biochemical process pyruvate kinase is involved in? So yeah, pyruvate kinase um, catalyzes the last step of glycolysis. So if we have a deficiency of this, we end up getting a backup of glycolysis products. And remember that in red blood cells, there's a specific pathway and the 1,3-BPG actually gets converted to 2,3-BPG. These patients will also have decreased ATP because that is a product of glycolysis. Pyruvate kinase deficiency is associated with hemolytic anemia in a newborn. And um, we actually, in this condition, we have to rule out hemolytic disease of the newborn from RH antibodies. And so that's why I gave mom's blood type, she's... um, A-positive, and so she wouldn't be forming those RH antibodies, okay? And so that, in a nutshell, is pyruvate kinase deficiencies, and that kind of wraps up our different intrinsic hemolytic anemias. So we talked about six different diseases, hereditary spherocytosis, G6PD deficiency, sickle cell disease, hemoglobin C disease, paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, and pyruvate kinase deficiency. So the way to remember these kind of quickly for me, I think of two, two, and two. So two of the diseases are errors in cell membrane proteins. Two of the diseases are errors in globulin synthesis. And two of the diseases are mutations in biochemical enzymes. So which two were the errors in cell membrane proteins hereditary spherocytosis, and paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. Which two were errors in globulin synthesis? That one's easy, sickle cell disease and hemoglobin C disease. And which two were mutations in specific enzymes? So that's G6PD deficiency and pyruvate kinase deficiency. It's not a super great mnemonic, but I think 2, 2, and 2 is kind of a good way to categorize the different types of intrinsic hemolytic anemia so that you kind of have a mental list in mind. So, now really quickly, let's do rapid fire questions of things that you should just absolutely know. What does bone marrow biopsy show in aplastic anemia? Remember, that's going to be a hypocellular bone marrow because aplastic anemia patients will have pancytopenia and they're going to have a fatty infiltrate. So the bone marrow is just going to be filled with fat cells. Next, I'll ask about some lab values in hemolytic anemia. What happens to hemoglobin? It's decreased. What happens to bilirubin? It's increased. So we have an indirect bilirubinemia. What's going to be total bilirubin? It's going to be elevated. And direct bilirubin, it's probably going to be normal. Uh, next question, which two diseases have um, spherocytes on peripheral smear? Remember, autoimmune hemolytic anemia as well as hereditary spherocytosis. And do you remember how? what is going to be the diagnostic test that can help differentiate them? The Coombs test. So autoimmune hemolytic anemia is going to have a positive Coombs test. Next question, what should you think of if you hear hemolytic anemia and schistocytes? So remember, schistocytes are helmet cells which happen in mechanical damage. And that can either be microangiopathic due to constriction of vessels, or it can be macroangiopathic um, due to damage caused by um, stenotic or prosthetic valves. Okay that schistocytes are cells that have gone to battle and come out cut up and mechanically damaged. Um, And then finally, an African-American male who develops hematuria and abdominal slash back pain after taking a sulfa drug, G6PD deficiency. Excellent. So... Thank you so much um, if you're still listening and you kind of powered through this. I know this was a very, very long episode um, and we covered a lot of different diseases and a lot of kind of confusing concepts, I think, to grasp. Um, What I really want you to take away from this episode is how normocytic anemia is classified. So remember that normocytic anemia can be classified as either non-hemolytic or hemolytic and hemolytic is then further divided into extrinsic versus intrinsic, and that is in relation to the red blood cell. So extrinsic causes, remember we talked about the mnemonic AVVI or VIVA, and then for intrinsic causes, remember we talked about 2, 2, and 2, so 2 caused by defects in the cell membrane, two caused by defects in the globulin chains, and two caused by defects in specific enzymes. I really think that if you're able to kind of create that structured pattern of thought in your mind, then whenever you approach the questions, um, you'll have kind of a great approach to classifying the different types of anemia and kind of easier get to the diagnosis. And a lot of it has to do with sifting through the different lab values um, and you know, pattern recognition, so thank you so much for taking the time to listen to part two. I know this was the longest one. there's a lot of different subcategories, but I really hope it you know helps you build that mind palace so that you can become a master at answering questions about anemia. Um, tune in next week to our last episode, which will be on macrocytic anemia, and that'll kind of wrap up this long um, tedious series on anemia. Thank you so much for your time. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org, and you can post them under the link for this specific episode. Um, If you like the episodes and find them helpful, please subscribe, give us a comment or a rating. Um, Remember, one by one, we're tackling all the SOS topics with a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down.